Father God, you are so excellent and worthy of our affection and our adoration. And right now, what we need more than anything else in the world is for you to remove every distraction, every obstruction, every, every barrier for us to see your beauty and your glory in the text today. That anything that would keep us from recognizing the glory of God and embracing it as our treasure, that you would move that out of our way, Father. Me especially, in communicating these things, Father, I pray that you would move me out of the way and that your word would speak clearly and that our hearts would be open to receive it, Father. It's such a glorious, awesome thing that the, the, the living God became a man so that he could save us. I pray that we would feel the weight of that today as we look at the text that you've given us. In the name of Jesus, amen. So if you've been with us for the last few weeks, we've been going through a, uh, a passage of Luke 1 that is referred to as Mary's Song of Praise. It's called the Magnificat. And uh, we've been doing that throughout the month of December. And this is what Mary sings in response to the news that she will be the one who will bring into the world the long-awaited Messiah who has been literally foreshadowed and promised and, and prophesied about for thousands of years. And we've been getting different glimpses of glories each week about this passage, this song of praise, um, and different aspects of, of what really is a, a song, an act of worship that we are invited into. It's not just something that she did then. If your faith is in Jesus Christ then the entrance of the Messiah into the world means that Mary's song of praise is our song of praise, and we've been embracing what that reality is. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read a bit further this week um, and get up to verse 53 of Luke 1, and uh, then next week Jacob's going to close us out with the last two verses. So come check that out, please, if you can. And um, then after that, in January, we're going to be going into the book of Ruth, for several weeks, and I am very, very excited about that. So I hope that you guys can make that as well. So let's start with verse 46 and read through this text. Halfway through 46, Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humblest state of his servants. For behold, from now on all generations will call me Blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and he has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. So in verse 51, 52, and 53, Mary is shifting gears here from the passage. As, you just as we just read through that, you can see this. She shifts from praising aspects of God's character and who he is to now looking at what he is doing, looking at the, the actual activities that God is conducting in this massive event. And she begins with this statement, 
He has shown strength with his arm. He has shown strength with his arm. So Mary is saying here that God in this event, the birth of her son, the Messiah, is displaying his power in this world. As his son comes into this world, he is showing his strength. And throughout the Bible, all of it really, the depiction of God's arm is almost always attached to an act of protection or salvation. God's arm is always displayed or communicated when something like that is going on, something that God does to rescue his people. For example, in Exodus 6, God says this to the people of Israel who've been enslaved to uh, the nation of Egypt for centuries. He says, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And so when Mary says that God is shown strength with his arm, the kind of strength that she is referring to, the kind of strength that has captured her heart in this song is the kind of strength, the kind of power that saves people. A kind of strength with his arm that delivers people and redeems people, just like he did with the people of Israel who were enslaved to the Egyptians. And so the question is, the overarching question for today is, how in Mary's situation is God showing strength in his arm? What does that look like? What is the depiction that we get? Well, Luke one thirty one tells us why Mary is singing this song. It shows us the event, and I want to take a look at that text. So here we have the angel of Gabriel, who is giving this news to Mary that is going to cause her to sing. And this is what the angel says. The angel says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name... Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give, him, give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So Gabriel is telling Mary that your son is actually going to be called the Son of the Most High God. That's your son, Mary. And the angel says that the Most High is going to give him, her son, the throne of his father, David. And his kingdom, this kingdom that he's going to inherit and receive, will never, ever, ever have an end. This is the promised Jewish Messiah. Mary is not confused about this at all. This is something that has been promised for ages and it is what ignites her worship here. It's what ignites the, the Magnificat. This is God's act of salvation for his people. And it is what it looks like for God to show strength with his arm. For Jesus to come into the world. So I want to go back to the Magnificat and look at those three verses again. Just zero in on those three verses and find out what God wants to tell us from that aspect. That part of the Magnificat specifically. So verse 51, he says... Or Mary says, he has shown strength with his arm. This is God. God has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. God has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. 
Now, I don't know about you, that's not a common Christmas passage. I, I don't think I've ever heard anyone teach on that. It doesn't mean it's special today. It just means that it was a little bit tough for me to wrap my brain around it this week. Um, so last week, David preached the verse before this, and he did a great job of explaining and articulating Mary's status as a first century Jewish woman in poverty from the town of Nazareth. She had lots going against her. And, and so we know right off the bat that in, as far as these verses are concerned, there is a way in which this event is changing everything in her life. Everything in her life. Her son is going to be the king of everyone. How could that not change everything for a woman born into poverty in the middle of a nowhere town called Nazareth? So there is, there is a reality here, a powerful aspect of this praise where she is being in her humble estate, in her humiliation, exalted by God by, giving this, by being given this honor. It is a personal reality, but it is certainly more than that. There is a way in which this passage has implications in our lives. So she says in, in here that God's showing the strength with his arm, is God scattering the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. It is God bringing low the mighty from their thrones and exalting the humble. It is him filling the hungry with food and sending those who are full away empty, the rich. So this is what it looks like in the context of this song for God to show strength with his arm. Somehow those realities that we see here are connected to the birth of Jesus. So God in this birth somehow is dealing with the proud, the mighty, the rich in one way. And then he is in the same birth, the same event, dealing with and engaging the poor, the hungry, the impoverished, those without food. He's doing both of these things. And in the first group, he's stripping away things that they've acquired in this life. And in the second group, he is giving things to them that they could never acquire in this life because of where they were. And somehow this radical reversal, this change up is intrinsic and in the center. It's central actually to Mary's song of praise. This isn't a sidebar. This isn't a, a theological point. I think we relegate it to a theological sort of peripheral conversation, but that's not it. This is a focal point of her worship. This takes up three verses in this song. It is the largest part of this song. And that means that basically it's the focal point of this. And, and this theme isn't isolated to Mary's song. This theme is seen throughout the entire gospel of Luke. And really, much of the New Testament and the Bible has this recurring theme and so I'm going to give you, I could go to many places in this book, many places into the, in the gospel of Luke. Uh, I'm going to give you one. I want to go to Luke 6, verse 20, and I want to go directly to Jesus. Jesus is, is this 30 years removed, roughly, from the events that we're reading in the Magnificat. Jesus is a man. He's beginning his public ministry, and he's about to, to preach a sermon that we will know as the Beatitudes. And listen to what he says, Luke 6, verse 20. And he lifted his eyes upon his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. 
Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. That's his opening salvo of this sermon. This is Jesus teaching people about the kingdom of God, the very same kingdom that Gabriel has communicated to Mary, the kingdom Jesus is going to have will have no end. This is the same kingdom. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor because they're going to inherit this kingdom that Gabriel promised Mary. And he says, blessed are the hungry for they're going to be satisfied. This sounds familiar. Probably, and if you've read much of Luke recently in, in the Advent readings or any, any, anywhere else in the Bible that deals with this aspect, you'll see this is prominent in the text. When Jesus wants to explain the nature of his kingdom, he doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't speak about this in a roundabout way. He says, the last in my kingdom shall be first. The humble and the broken will be lifted up in my kingdom. But that isn't all that he says here in Luke 6. Listen to verse 24 and 25. Jesus says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are, who are full now, for you shall be hungry. That's heavy. That is heavy stuff. So this isn't simply a blessing directed to the poor and those in need. There's another side to this coin. And that side is for the rich and for the wealthy and for the mighty. And that is that Jesus doesn't give them a blessing here. Instead, he pronounces on them a curse. That's what the word woe means here. He says, woe to you who are rich. Woe to you are, are full. In other words, cursed are you who are rich and full in this life. Now, why is this? This is a hard text to read in 21st century America. Because compared to the rest of the world, we're doing pretty good. Why? Is Jesus advocating asceticism? Getting rid of everything we've got and living in poverty. Is he advocating right here a vow of, of poverty? Is that how we earn our passage into his kingdom? He said, do, he said only the poor are going in. Is that how we do it? We give rid of everything. Is that what he's saying here? And the answer, of course, if you read the rest of Scripture, is no, that isn't the case. However, there are many examples in Scripture when commands to give everything away reveal the heart of the person who's being commanded. For those who claim to follow Jesus, what a, a profound tragedy would it be for us to die with very full bank accounts? And meanwhile, the world around us is suffering. It would be a tragedy for us as followers of Jesus to hear his words and store up trivial comforts for ourselves while most of the planet is overwhelmed with starvation, is overwhelmed with disease and poverty, abject poverty. And so while a vow of poverty isn't what Jesus is looking for here, he's not seeking for them to say, all right, I'm giving up everything because that's how I'm going to get in. That's not what he's after here. It's not a means to get into the kingdom. But there's clearly a connection to be understood here. There's a connection to be understood with what poverty he's referring to. And so what is that? I want to listen again to verse 24. Jesus says in verse 24, Woe to you who are rich, 
for you have received your consolation. You've received your consolation. What does he mean by that? What is he saying? Well, Jesus, when he is referring to these people who are rich, and really the paradigm throughout all of Scripture when it's talking about the people who are rich, are those who have set their hopes on what they can attain and gather for themselves in this life. That is their consolation. That's their hope. They've put all of their marbles into this one basket. And this isn't a wealthy person who is exceedingly generous and always dumping money out of his bank account or her bank account to give to people who are in desperate need. This isn't that person. This isn't someone who is in a place of great power who is using that power to bring um, hope and life to people who are suffering. That's not what he's referring to here. It's neither of those things. The rich that he's referring to here are those who have put their hope in this life alone. And many of those people are remarkably rich. Some of them aren't. But this is all they've got and they're fighting for it. This world is everything for them. It is their highest treasure. It's what they want to accumulate more than anything else. That's their consolation. That's their ultimate joy. And Jesus is saying, for those who have put their hope in this, in what you can get for yourself here, whether taking from people or doing whatever, for those people, your comforts will become a curse for you. Your consolation in this life will prove to be devastation in the next. And so he is, in this statement, pleading with them for them not to put their hope in this world. Now, let's go back to the Magnificat. How are we to understand this paradigm that Jesus has just communicated in the context of Mary's song? We've, we've Given all that we've seen, what is the connection between this text, uh, Luke, could you put it up again, Luke 1, 51 through 53, what's the connection between that passage and the birth of Jesus Christ? How are we supposed to understand this? So think about this. There's a connection with these words and Christmas. This is the first Christmas song ever sung. There, there was never a Christmas song sung before this. This is six months or so, nine months before the birth of Jesus. This is the first Christmas song. So there's a connection here to that. Why talk about these specific things here, Mary? Well, there are two different ways that we're going to understand why Mary's singing these things. And the first is this. In this song, in this event that Mary is describing in the song, God is dealing with the relationships between men, between humanity, humankind, people in this world. He is, he is dealing with how people relate to each other, whether poor or rich, whether mighty or weak, he's engaging that. God is dealing with that. And Mary is singing about what God is doing in these three verses to interact with that reality, the poor in this world and the rich. The second thing is related, but very different. The second thing is, rather than God dealing with the relationships between people, between men, God is dealing with his relationship to humanity. And so the second question is, what does the song say about God's relationship with mankind? What do these three verses say about that? And how are both of these things, both of these two pathways to understanding this text, how are they connected to the Christmas story? How are they connected to Christmas? What we're going to be doing in, in two days. 
And so to answer both of these questions, I'm going to go to 1 Samuel 2. So if you've got your Bibles, please turn to 1 Samuel 2. <laughs> As we've uh, talked about the Magnificat, this song that Mary sings draws from a very deep well of Scripture. Um, there are passages that Mary is pulling up in this song as though by memory. It shows how Bible-saturated she was. She knew her Bible. And um, the one place that it draws from most prominently, almost parallels in many ways, is a song, is a prayer actually, from another woman in the Old Testament named Hannah. I don't know if you remember the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel Hannah was unable to have a child, like Elizabeth in Luke 1, if you were here with us a few weeks ago. And for this reason, because of this, she was marginalized, she was humiliated, she was shamed because she could not have a child. And in response to her humiliation, she gets on her knees and she pleads with God, give me a child, remove this shame from me, help me. And God, in his exceeding grace and love for her, grants her the answer to her prayer. She even tells God, I will give you my son. He will serve you. And her son is Samuel. And the reason this is interesting is that Samuel is the prophet who anoints David. Think about that in context with our verse in Gabriel. The same King David that Gabriel has told Mary, he's your father. He's the father of Jesus. He's the father of your son. And I'm going to put him on his throne. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David. And this is the same throne that Gabriel's talking about. So even though they are separated by a thousand years, Hannah on one end and Mary on the other, these women stand on opposite ends of the most important genealogy in human history, period. Hannah will have the son who will anoint David, the first king in this lineage. And Mary is going to be on the opposite end of this lineage, and she will have Jesus, the final and last king in this genealogy. And so upon Hannah miraculously conceiving this child. She too, like Mary, worships God. And I want to look at a section of, just a small portion of her prayer. I would advise you taking a look at the whole thing. It is glorious and awesome. But I want to look at just a portion of her prayer, and I want to ask our two questions, the two questions we had before. Number one, how is God, in our text, in Luke 1, 51 through 53, dealing with the relationships between different people, different classes, different social orderings. And number two is how is God dealing with his relationship to us? How is he dealing with that? How is he working those things out? And what do both of those have to do with Christmas? So let's read. Verse three is where we're going to be, 1 Samuel 2. Hannah says, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble, feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills 
and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And on them he has set the world. And so Hannah begins this section of her prayer by saying, by telling mankind, never talk proudly, never talk arrogantly. And her reason for this is that we have a God. There is a God who exists. He is very real. And he weighs all actions. He weighs all of them. Which means that he is the judge. And she says, this God, the Lord, is a God of knowledge. And and in other words, that means there's no secrets from him. There's nothing we've ever said, done, or thought that is hidden from his sight. He has no, there's no secrets that we can hold on to that he would not know. He knows every single thought. He knows every single motivation we've had. He is a God of knowledge and he weighs them. He can judge fairly. He can judge, he can judge equally everyone because he knows everyone perfectly. And she is saying that God is going to judge every single action one day. And when he does, that day is going to look a lot like this. The bows of the mighty will be broken, but the feeble will bind on strength. The full will be forced to hire themselves out for bread, but the hungry will be filled. The barren will bear seven children, yet the one who has many will be forlorn. And then in verse seven, he says, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. That's what God weighing and judging actions looks like. In other words, it looks a lot like justice. When he shows up, he is going to bring justice. And this is the same event that the Magnificat is pointing to. They are the same sequence of events. And what this means is that the enthronement of Jesus, as foretold by Gabriel, is the very means by which God is going to do this. He's going to execute justice in the world this, for this reason, because Jesus has been enthroned. Listen to Paul in Acts 17. Paul says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he, God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And that man is Jesus Christ. So the judgment of the wicked in this world and the relief given to the humble and the broken comes through the appointment of Jesus as the king. His enthronement is, is really the, the foundation from which he will one day judge the world in righteousness. He will bring justice from that throne. And every proud and arrogant person who has placed their hope in the things of this world 
as their consolation, as their ultimate treasure, they will be brought very low. They will be brought low. And every, every broken an impoverished person who has set their hope on the living God will be raised up on that day. This is reality. This is going to happen. There will be a day like this. This is not a fairy tale. And so if you ever wondered, watching CNN or reading in the news, if there will ever be justice brought to this world, or if there would ever be someone who's going to hold evil men and their atrocities responsible in the end, or if you ever wondered if there would be someone who will one day set all the wrongs right, the answer is yes. And his name is Jesus Christ, Son of Mary, Son of David, Son of God. When he returns, he will bring justice with him, And every broken thing will be mended. Every wrong will be righted because God has fixed a day. Now, like I said, there are two dimensions. That's one of them. That's a real event. And you can't read far in the New Testament and really the Old Testament without seeing this over and over again. This will happen. Valleys will be filled and mountains will be cut down. And he's not talking about topography when Luke quotes um, Isaiah in Luke 2. He's talking about, or Luke 3, he's talking about the entire strata of human existence. And so those are the two dimensions, that's the first dimension. The second question is, how is God dealing with his relationship with us? And to engage that question, Hannah, in her prayer, paints a very uncomfortable picture of God. A very uncomfortable picture. Not only does she say that God brings justice into the world, by exerting his great power through his son and his throne. But it says here that he is the one who determines whether or not we live or die at any given moment. And that makes a lot of us, makes me, kind of uncomfortable. That arrangement is scary because... We like to have power and control over our destiny. But what it says is that whether we live or die, it says, verse 6, the Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. That's his prerogative, his right. It's God who decides that. And and like I said, we're not comfortable with that arrangement that God can take a life whenever he wants to because we we desire to have that governance over our own destinies. But that's not what the verse says. It says here that God is ultimately in control of our lives. You and I, think about the weight of this, are only alive right now, this moment, because God in his good pleasure decided for that to be. How often do we think in those terms? Hannah clearly does. The Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. But most of the world I would, I would bargain the vast majority of the world has never, ever conceived the weight of those few words. And so, if I die right now in this, in this cafeteria, or if I die in the, on the way home, this verse says that God, in his providence, determined for that to happen. 
the Lord kills, can only mean that. God does this. So life and death in human history aren't arbitrary realities. In Hannah's theology, they are connected to an almighty God. And the reason that this is critical for us to see, the reason that this is important for us to see about this is because it directly connects to our relationship with God. Look at the end of this passage that we read in 1 Samuel, verse 8. It says, For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Hannah is telling us why God can bring justice in the world and why he governs, he alone governs, life and death. It is because the pillars of the earth belong to him. He is the one who owns everything because he holds everything together. They're his. All of it. Which is why he has the power and the right to do what, as he pleases. In other words, everything you see, think about it for a second. Our planet, this massive ball of stone and magma or whatever is underneath us, atmosphere, and the solar system around it, which we can barely even get to the end, and the galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy around that. And then think about the trillions of galaxies scattered across the the seemingly unending expanse of space that we call universe. That belongs to God in all of its imponderably massive size and scale and scope. It is his. And this passage says, verse 8, he sets it, the universe, on his own foundation. She calls them the pillars of the earth. And the point is this, there is not a single atomic particle in the universe that does not belong in its completeness and in its, in its entirety to God. They are his. But what does that have to do with our question? What does that have to do with Christmas? That these things belong to him. What does that have to do with God's relationship to humanity? Well, I want you to think back to what Jesus said in Luke 6. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Think about those words here. In other words, you got what you wanted. What does that look like? Does that look like authority, wealth, power, control? You got what you wanted. For the rich in Luke 6, they have put their hope in all of these things they could gather in this life, but not in God. There is zero acknowledgement that these things that they've garnered for themselves belong ultimately to God. You see, the main, pe- main issue isn't what happens, uh, the, the main issue uh, isn't what people have specifically. The main issue is what people treasure. What do they treasure? This proud who are scattered in Mary's song, this arrogant who are silenced in Hannah's prayer, all of them treasure something else besides God. They don't, they don't care about God. They want his stuff. They want his things. And this is at the heart of a refusal to acknowledge and honor God, the one who owns everything, the one who is graciously provided everything. Think about it. If he owns everything, the very molecule is his. Everything we have, every single thing we have is gift. 
Listen to how Paul describes this in Acts 14. He says, He, God, did not leave himself without witness. For God did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. This is the same God from Hannah's prayer who owns the pillars of the earth and has set the world on them. And it says here, this is his witness. So think about this. Every smile you've ever had, every good taste that has touched the palate of your tongue, every single joy you will experience in this life the ones that are coming on Tuesday, every single one of them are from God and they are a means to know his goodness and his love for you. Every single one. All of this exists so that we might know and cherish God. And so let me ask you a question. This is a hard question for me. Have you ever pondered why it was that you woke up this morning and were breathing. Why it was that you just didn't stop breathing in your sleep. Like, because that could have happened. But you woke up alive and you were breathing air. Thank Jesus. That didn't have to happen. We think it's automatic. We think that this is something God owes us sometimes. And it's not. God helped you breathe. He helped you live. He helped you survive. He helped you wake up because he loves you. He loves you. And the tragedy is we don't even think a second thought about that, generally. It, it really is a sidebar thing, nothing to us, as though he owed it to us. But Acts 17 says that God is the one who gives to humanity life and breath in everything. And our lack of gratitude towards him means that there's something more to the equation in the Magnificat than evil people doing bad things to innocent people and needing justice. That is part of it. That's a huge part of it. But there's something more here because we recognize that at the end of the day, everyone has been in some way, shape, or form unjust to God. Everyone has been in some way, arrogant and proud towards God. We've exalted ourselves above him when we refuse to enjoy the gift giver. Um, and instead, we, we kind of push him out of the way and just go for his stuff. A car, house, good things, but we don't want God. Now think about this. Christmas morning happens for you who have kids. Imagine your son or daughter you take out something that you've purchased for them. You give it to them. You love them. You want them to enjoy it. And it's an awesome present. And they grab it and push you out of the way and say, I'm done with you. I want to play with this. No one looks at that and says, how cute. How special. No one says that um, because it's offensive to the gift giver to, to do that because the gift giver is worth more than the gift. And it is offensive and, and really wicked for there to be no joy and acknowledgement in the giver of a gift. And if God has given us everything, everything, 
The pillars of the earth are his. They belong to him. Then the question we have is when God comes back to bring us justice through that man that he's appointed, what would happen to us? Like what, what's, what's that going to look like? Well, this is where, praise be to God, the Magnificat shines very brightly. In this event that Mary's singing about, God isn't just humbling the rich, but the one who is infinitely rich is voluntarily humbling himself. Though he owns the pillars that hold the universe together, this infinitely worthy God who has every reason and every right to abandon us instead enters the world to rescue us. I want you to listen to 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Listen to the words that Paul uses to describe Jesus and his incarnation. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. When we get to a verse like this, what we need to do is we need to stop and think very, very hard. Jesus Christ, the Lord, the God who owns everything, the one who, who set the universe in its place and everything in it belongs to him, yet though he is infinitely rich, infinitely worthy for your sake, Jesus becomes poor. Now look closely, look at these words. They're letters collected to make thoughts and ideas. But look at the words here. He says, he did this so that you, so that you. When God says that, he is talking about you. He has you you individually, your name in his mind when he inspires the Apostle Paul to write that. He's talking about me. He's talking about you. He's talking about people who, if left to our own devices, would not give him the time of day. But Paul says here, by the Spirit of God, so that you, by his poverty, might become Rich, though you are impoverished spiritually, I'm coming to rescue you. I'm not leaving you alone. I am coming to rescue you. We cannot afford to depersonalize a verse like this. God is looking down into us, looking at us when he says this. The one who owns everything for your sake becomes nothing. And that's the reason why you and I can sing the Magnificat with joy. We can sing it alongside Mary because this was done for us. In that song, the most exalted becomes the most humble. In this song, the one who has everything gives up everything for those who deserve nothing. That's what happens in this song. That's how God shows the strength of his arm, the cross of Jesus Christ where he showed the strength of his arm stronger than any other point by Christ becoming the weakest and the most broken 
so that we could be free. And this is what had to happen for the Magnificat to be true for us. If this doesn't happen, if this verse is untrue, the Magnificat is meaningless to us. It has to happen. The cross has to happen. And this is the reason for Christmas. This is why Jesus came. The greatest news of the world that God didn't leave us in our pride, in our arrogance, in our obliviousness to his beauty and his glory and his worth, but he made a way. And that way has a name. It's called Jesus Christ, son of Mary, son of David, son of God who will be enthroned forever. And so in a few moments, we're going to take communion as we worship. And if your faith is in Christ, you are invited to participate. You are invited to receive these elements. And what I want you to do is, as you take the bread and the cup, and as you receive them, I want you to consider the cross, but I don't want you to mourn it. I don't want you to mourn it as a tragedy. It is the saddest event in human history that God, the Son of God, is killed on a cross. That is the saddest event. Don't mourn it. Rejoice in it because it's by his blood alone that we have forgiveness, that we have mercy, that we have grace. It's by his blood that we can receive him and delight in him the way we ought to. The way we ought to because he made us rich. And and that, my friends, is what it looks like for God to show the strength of his arm. That's what it looks like, the cross. The Magnificat never uses those words, but that's what it's talking about. The cross. It's the center of the Magnificat, and it is the very reason for Christmas. Without the cross, there is no Christmas. The cross is the reason. The cross is how the, the, the Christmas is how the cross could take place. That God, in his grace and his love for us, didn't leave us in our poverty, but he came back for us to make us rich by giving us the greatest treasure in the universe, himself. He's the greatest treasure in the universe. There's nothing like him. There is nothing like him. And he didn't wait for us to ascend into the heavens to get him. He came all the way down and landed in a feeding trough so that 30 years later he could have his back splayed open with whips and lay on another piece of wood, another slab of wood to be lifted up so that anyone who believes in him would receive eternal life. That's our Jesus, our treasure. Let me pray. Father God, I know that I don't do, how can I, how can I do justice to this? The things we're looking at here are beyond human speech, and yet you have deigned, you've come down and spoken with a lisp, as John Calvin says, into our ears through the words of Scripture. And you, you'd point us to these massive glories in Scripture that we have no way of seeing or understanding without your 
divine, gracious help. So what I'm asking for here is that as we worship, as we celebrate the advent of Christ into this world, as we go our ways and, and tomorrow we sing carols, at the, uh, we sing songs and read scripture at the, at the Kimballs and, and Christmas morning we celebrate in whatever context we're in, Father, that the weight of this would not be lost on us. A treasure in the manger. What can kings possibly give to the king of kings who is worthy of our affection? It is an awesome thing that Jesus came down and humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross. I pray that we would feel the weight of that and we wouldn't mourn it as we take communion. We wouldn't see the tragedy. We would look through the tragedy and see the glory. He's sitting at the right hand of God and he's coming back for his, his family and that we would rejoice, Father God. I pray that in the name of Jesus Christ. He's going to reign forever and we will share that with him because he's made us rich through his poverty. In the name of Jesus, Amen.